We are creating a platform for those who are curious, one that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is the Working Artist Project. I've had a blast producing and hosting this show, but the time has come for me to ask you guys for a little help. If you would like to help keep the show going, please check out my Patreon page. Patreon is much like Kickstarter, except it's an ongoing funding platform, meaning it has no end date. With as little as $2, you can help me grow this show to new heights. The Patreon link will be in the description below. Just go down there, click the link, check out all the information. If you dig it, hit that donate button. Anyhow, either way, thank all you guys for the support so far. Every guest on the Working Artist Project has one thing in common, a dedication to growth. Today's guest is no different. Sherelle's relentless focus on her craft allowed her to accomplish amazing things, from attending and completing her education at the prestigious School of Juilliard to touring the world with legendary artists. She is an unstoppable force of focus, hard work, perseverance, and dedication. Please help me in welcoming Sherelle Cassidy to the Working Artist Project. Thank you. Sherelle, I want to just start with you telling me a little bit about where you're from and how you got to plan saxophone and how you made it to New York City. Well, I was born in Iowa City, and I moved around quite a bit as a kid, um, partly because of the military and partly because of a divorce. Um, so I was moving from state to state all the time, and I kind of clung to music from a young age. Okay. And then we settled in Oklahoma when I was 12, and... Um, from then, I continued playing the piano and the saxophone. And uh, my father was a musician oh. and a music therapist. Was he in the military? or He wasn't. Um, mom my was. mom worked for the government. Okay. But um, he, he was actually in the military way before I was born. But he played Hammond B3 and piano and trumpet and French horn. Nice. And was kind of a savant at playing music. Okay, cool. And so you play, you, you say you, play, you started on piano. Mm -hmm. and saxophone yes but you play like bass clarinet and flute and how did you get to all those other instruments that's kind of rare yeah um it was a a gradual process um i played saxophone first and then um when i got into high school i was always first chair on saxophone oh, okay <laughs> so by the second year the band director said you know what this year you're gonna play clarinet and then i became first chair in the clarinet section oh damn the next year he said okay <laughs> well, this is too easy. Now you're going to play flute. Okay. <laughs> and so then I ended up playing flute in our jazz bands. Um, we played La Fiesta by Chick Corea. Mm -hmm. So um, that arrangement had piccolo. So I learned to play piccolo in that. And he also had me playing marimba on some things. And um, so in high school, I, I got a lot of my doubling started. Right. So I wonder if he was like aware of that. Like if he was like, just like, okay, she's going to need to double. It makes you a more marketable musician. You know. I think he was because he was quite an exceptional big band director okay that was his thing was big band so he knew i'd have to double right 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 yeah and so how was how has that like helped you in your career so far like are you doing like broadway stuff or have you done that kind of thing or? i have um i've subbed on a lot of broadway mm -hmm. and off-broadway productions um, and it's come in handy you know on on a lot of work that i've done whether it's recording or big band or broadway mm -hmm. um really the flute and clarinet alone have really you know come in handy on a lot of gigs. Right. So after high school, what happened? You went, what school did you go to? 
Um, I went to the University of Central Oklahoma for two years. Okay. They gave me a full scholarship. Um, North Texas had given me a full scholarship, but on classical saxophone. Oh. And at the time, I wanted to make the switch. So UCO was the school that would allow me to play in the jazz bands and take jazz improv and, you know, okay. that cool. kind of thing. So you so you started and then two years and then you outgrew it or what have you got um, bored? What happened? I started to to want to be in a bigger pool. Uh-huh. Um, there weren't many saxophone players out there. My first teacher was Brian Goral, and he was a great teacher. But um, you need a lot of teachers. And at the time, I was studying yeah. with a trumpet player. And okay. you know, every now and then, an artist would come through Oklahoma. But I wanted to study with the best, the greatest musicians. Right. So I went to the East Coast. Okay. Um, and my aunt lives in Boston. Oh. So I went to Boston first. Um, enrolled in Berkeley, but got ended up getting a last-minute better scholarship at New England Conservatory, ended up not being able to take it because my dad um, apparently claimed me at the time and I was technically a dependent. So is this, there was a lot involved and I ended up not being in school and oh, um, very quickly moved to New York um, without a school, or with really without a plan. I just loved the music. Mm-hmm. My first place that I went to in New York was Smalls. Okay. And immediately it felt like family. And well, have you had you had been to New York before at this point? You, it was your first time in New York. Uh, I had gone for a week okay. to visit a friend that was actually from Oklahoma. Okay, um, he invited me to visit for a week, and I did. And we went to see Branford's quartet play at Studio Fifty Four, and oh, nice! Um, just went all around the city hearing music, and I said, "This is where I want to be." Yeah. <laughs> so um, about two months later, I ended up just making a jump and moving to New York with basically. I had about five hundred dollars. <laughs> oh shit, man! Can you even move to New York with five hundred dollars? I it's think that's hard. impossible. <laughs> Damn, it's not easy. Okay, yeah. So you were couch surfing or what? Yeah, for yeah. a little while, and then I found a room. Okay. Um, and you know, some a lot of things happened to where I would find a place, and then the person who I was renting from, you know, expected more from me than just rent. So I would end up moving out that night. Oh, what do you mean? Um, you know, they would expect different, you know, like I, I would wake up and someone would be naked over me. Oh, shit. And, That's you know, out. I said, okay, I have to go. Oh, <laughs> you know? man. So that happened twice, actually. What? And then I lived with a woman who um, she kept finding panties in her bathroom. And she thought that her husband was cheating with me. But he was actually bringing women over in the daytime. Oh, and she Lord. didn't believe me when I told her that. So she kicked me out and, again, you know, spontaneously homeless. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> this is like some shit that can only happen in New York. Yeah. Like, so that's that's the start in New York. You know, it was a little bumpy. Yeah, everybody's, but, uh, everybody, I feel like everyone's <laughs> first year is just like life testing the fuck out of you, you know. Just yeah. Like, are you going to stay here? Are you going to leave? Yep. Wow. So we'll do that. <laughs> so you did you finally land into a more permanent living situation or I did. I eventually got an apartment and I had a job hostessing that turned into waitressing and then bartending. Mm-hmm. Um which lasted through school. I ended up going back to school um at the new school. Oh, okay. When I got to New York I was hanging around smalls and the musicians and and a lot of the guys my age were at the new school. Oh, okay. So that inspired me to go there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I got a decent scholarship, and you know, finished my bachelor's there. What was the growth process like for you in New York? 
those that first year? It was intense because I immediately realized that I wasn't ready at all. Oh wow! To okay. be there, you know, I knew bird tunes and I knew some tunes and some mm. solos and stuff, but I was by no means ready to just be on a scene. Yeah. So I would go every night to the jam session and learn, you know, learn all kinds of tunes, and then it got to where I would go. And I would stay until there was a tune I didn't know. And okay. then I would just go home and learn that tune. Mm. Come back the next night. Stay same thing. The, you know, same thing. Yeah. And um, it was great, though. The community was, was pretty much very supportive. And, um, and I had a great time doing it because that's what I wanted. I was chasing the music. After the new school, you decided to go to Juilliard. Yeah. Right. So was, you feel like, was that whole process, was that worth it, going to Juilliard to you? For me, it was because it was a progression. Mm -hmm. Again, I was out of the new school. I was playing. Um, but I still didn't feel like I had had the time to be where I wanted to be. And I also felt like I needed to be more steeped in the history of jazz mm -hmm. to, to be considered valid, to have validity right. and be able to know what I was talking about from the roots of the music. Right. So um, Juilliard for me was a great experience. I mean, it was a life-consuming program. Okay. Um, I didn't do much outside of Juilliard. In fact, I stopped hanging out downtown. I stopped, you know, at the little jazz clubs. And right, right, right. I was pretty much just at Juilliard. Wow. But that was great. I got to practice six, eight hours a day and go to classes the rest of the time. And, right. And I had great um, instructors while I was there. You know, Victor Goins was great. And okay. um, a lot of the teachers were great. Ben Wolf and, and Carl Allen and... So, um, and then the classical departments, right. you know, Kendall did you, Briggs. Did you do both? Yeah. Oh, cool. We did. I didn't double in classical, but we had to take classical classes. Okay. Um, okay. The ear training and the, the um, it's called essential elements, but it's actually counterpoint. Yeah. So you got an interesting story because you, you know, I, this is kind of cheesy, but you started from the bottom, you know what I'm saying? Like you came yeah. from Oklahoma to New York City and you made it all the way to Juilliard you know what I mean like for people who don't know like you can't just go to Juilliard like there's right. a very select you know few people who get to go to that school so you had to be one of the baddest baddest people on a scene or you know to even get that opportunity you had to so like how did that come about did you just audition or I did I auditioned it was it was a really thorough audition mm -hmm. and um I think they just saw something in me. You okay. know, I don't know that I was the baddest cat or, you know, right. anything like that. But I think they saw something in me. Which... Like, how did you keep yourself humble through all of that? Because you're like, man, I'm climbing up. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be jazz royalty pretty soon. Well, like, <laughs> I didn't know that. And to be honest, I was the one of the oldest students at Juilliard. Really? At the time, I was 28. Okay. And although I was getting my master's, um, a lot of guys there were 18. 20 yeah. okay and they were feeling like okay we're the baddest you know oh. but for me i felt like i had a long way to go mm -hmm. and and i was actually learning a ton from my classmates okay you know, my classmates were also very accomplished mm -hmm. and we were hard on each other yeah which was good it was healthy did you feel any kind of pressure to like represent for the for your female compatriots i don't know i've always felt pressure to be the greatest that i can be mm -hmm. and not let being female get in the way of that right right um i looked up to some females growing up like ingrid jensen reedy rosness and jerry allen right um but yeah i try not to let being female be a factor yeah just kind of try to be the best because you know it is sad when i see a female play and, and she's not ready 
Right. But I remember being that girl. Mm-hmm. So it just depends how long you want to be in that position. Right, right. You know, well, I think th- sometimes women get more attention in that stage of their musical journey mm-hmm. just because there's fewer right. of them. So they're more harshly judged. But it's like triple the amount of guys and, and men in the same position that they are at the same time. You know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. Well, the ratios are about the same. Mm-hmm. It just happens that one has a much less populated. Right. You know, yeah, for sure, one hundred percent. So, like, what would you tell like a young woman coming up, attempting to break into her career? Like, what's the secret to growth? At like you experienced, to work really hard, mm-hmm. to work hard, and to uh, find people that you trust their advice. You know, and listen to those people. And um, if you have a vision, not to change your vision for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a lot of the things I did was um, maybe for record labels. They wanted my image to be this or that. Oh. Or the cover of the album to be this or that. And and I didn't get a choice because I didn't pay for it. So I always felt like since I was coming up without the money mm-hmm. to put out my own product, that I didn't have that much of a choice in my what I wanted to put out there image-wise. And so, I was told that. Oh, they were straight up they, with you. They would tell me that. And wow. You know, I'm glad that my music got out there. But in the end, I would say don't compromise. Yeah. If in this day and age, especially. Yeah. Put something out yourself. If, you right. Know, that's the case. Or, you know. Now, were they doing the same thing to, to the guys on the label? Yeah. They were. Okay. Yeah. They wanted a certain thing and they, you know. Right. So. But were they doing that with the music also? Saying like, well, this song isn't really. Mm-hmm. So all of it, they had their hands in. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I found when a label pays for an album, it's a give and take. Wow. Okay. Which is why I want to start my own label now and put out, you know, my first release in 2017. Coming That's right. Up you just record. You just recorded. Yeah. With and and I want to do everything myself this time. Okay. Cool. And yeah. so you so you're really they can find it on maybe your website or. Oh yeah, and I'll have it on Amazon and iTunes. Okay. Your website is shirellcassidy.com. Cassidy is spelled with C A S S I T Y. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just because it's a little different. It is. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. So, like, I, I'm curious about to know, like, what was the most challenging time that you've had so far in your career, and what did you do to overcome it? Um, I'd say the most challenging time was when I left school, but I hadn't played with anyone, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any albums out, and I was just on the scene and I was trying to find a way to get an album out play with my heroes Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and it turns out that um, one of the things I learned at Juilliard was to reach out and so I started reaching out I called Jimmy Heath Uh you know I showed up to the Dizzy Band concerts you know I would go to um, all kinds of concerts of people I wanted to play with yeah and um, I would learn their music you know I learned all of Mulgrew's music, hoping to play with him one day. And yeah. Even though I never got to, it was good for me right, to right. do that anyway. So right. that that was my way of yeah. breaking in. That's a that's a good plan, you know. Yeah. Reach out, just be out there, make yourself visible, basically. Yeah. You know. Visible, yeah. but also talk to people, tell them you want to play with them. Right. Right. No. So you would just go walk up to guys like, I want to play with you. No. <laughs> no, people have done that too. Yeah. To me, and it's. It's Is that kind of weird awkward. for you? It's, it's weird? It's a little awkward. Yeah? But I picked up the phone 
Um, actually, a friend of mine dialed the number for me because I was too shy. Okay. Said, no, I'm not calling Jimmy Heath. They said, you have to call Jimmy Heath. But I think they knew something I didn't. Okay. But I, I took the phone and he said, hello. And I just said, hi, Mr. Heath. You know, how are you doing? This is Sherelle. Remember, you know, remember me, right. that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. The sax player. And I said, yeah. And he said, do you double? And I said, yeah. Do you read? And I said, yeah. And then, you know, he said, yeah. I'll have to have you in the band sometime. Yeah. So it was very natural. Right. That's um, dope. And I think through the years, the, the gigs that I've gotten have been because I either got to sit in with someone or mm -hmm. play with someone. And then someone in that circumstance remembered me. Right. And then called me and, you know. That's cool. That's cool. And you still playing with Jimmy. Yeah. So what year was that that you Amazingly. first called him? 2008. 2008. Yeah. So from 2008 until now, almost 2017, you still kicking it with Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Heath, that's that's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's great, man. So how many so how many years have you spent in New York so far? 16. 16 years. I don't know if I know anybody who spent that that long in the, in New York. Yeah, it's, you know. it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> that's man. So how did you how did you do that like you know, how did you manage to just keep it on, keep it trucking? Well, my goal was, at first, I had a goal where I wanted to play every night of the week. I just okay. wanted to play. Okay. And that happened. That goal happened. But oh. it was, you know, $50, $100 gigs most right. nights. Right. And then you realize it wears you out, and you don't have time to write. You don't have time for your own projects. So then I started only wanting to play with my heroes. Okay. That was the next goal. Okay. So then that started to happen. Okay. And it was very slow and gradual, but, you know, it, it happened. And, and um, at some point, you know, I, when that happened, I reached a stage where I said, okay, this is great, but I have a lot of time in between. Yeah. Because you know, when you're touring, you make a lot of money, and then you come back to New York. Right. Or right. a good, not a lot of money, but a you good amount. You get rich, kids. Right. <laughs> rich on jazz. <laughs> well, you know, you make some money when you go on the road, and then you come back, you're not going to play most of the time, you're not going to play right. little gigs that don't pay as much because time-wise, you want to work towards bigger projects. Mm -hmm. So I started realizing how much time I had in between and started thinking, well, how is this helping anyone being here? You know, just practicing and writing. Yeah. I can always do that. I can do that from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I started wanting to teach. Oh, cool. You know, and, and maybe mentor younger kids. And okay. Like, I know a lot of times people have a trouble especially at least musicians because you know like uh broadening their horizons into other things like teaching or whatever like how do you how did you know it was time for you to go into another direction or try some different things you know i started to realize that i was just living for the music which was great you want to live for the music right but it's almost like the music is living you if you're not careful what do you mean um, you can live for the music and keep doing the same thing over and over, writing music, practicing, going to play, recording mm -hmm. albums, going on tour, coming back, um, the same thing over and over, and expecting more results or different results. Okay. Isn't that the, isn't that the term for insanity? Yeah, <laughs> you know? that is. Doing the same thing over right. and over. And I said, you know, this is what I had dreamed of, but I actually want more. Mm -hmm. I want more for my life, not... You know, I, and I'll always want more for the music. Right. And and to be able to give more. But for me to be able to give more to the music, I had to try something else. Okay. Um, and and that meant, you know, doing something that helps other people. Right. So 
you know, eventually I want to start a camp. You know, yeah. I have I already have in the plans the blueprint for. Um, I want to I want to start a lot of different things that are going to help people. Yeah. So. Yeah, because playing music is the, mo- the most selfish thing you can do. It can be. I also think it can heal people, but only those who listen. Right. So to we to reach a wider group of people, mm. you know, it's you have to I think do a little more. Okay. Yeah. And for me I realized that's what would make me happy and um and mm. and be in control of the music and my art and not let it control me and my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it sounds like your perception of music or has changed over the last 16 years since you've been in New York City. Would you say that's true? or It's definitely true. Yeah. For me, even five years ago, it's the only thing that mattered in life. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and it sounds ridiculous now. Right. right. But well, I think all musicians are, you know, you have a period in life where that is the only thing that matters. Like, you don't care mm-hmm. about any body just this <laughs> instrument and making it sing you know and yeah. then like life happens and you grow up yeah you, you get a little older and you say well what have i left behind me right you know who have i really inspired or helped mm-hmm. um and then that becomes a little more important yeah yeah because music once you once you have the confidence to realize that the music is always going to be there for you and you're always going to make great music. Yeah. You know, and it's only going to get better if that's what you want. Mm-hmm. But it, it takes um, some courage to say, okay, I'm going to let that be what it is and now develop my life and other people's lives. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's deep, man. Now that you're not playing music from that place, why do you play music now? Because I have to. What does There's that mean? still something in me that is. I have to play. It's it's for me the most raw and and best way you know to express myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love music. Music music still hits me to the core. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a huge part of me still, um, and always will be. Uh, but I play. I play because I have to play. If I didn't play, I would just lose my mind. <laughs> Damn. Okay. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. So what's up? What's up? What's what's what are your future plans? Like, what are your future goals going forward? Um, well, like I said, I'm starting a camp. I want to eventually, maybe even start a situation where I can hire more musicians, whether it's through being a band leader or starting a festival or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to teach some more um, and develop that side of my career. Uh, definitely put out more albums that. I want to say one of the most frustrating things in New York is getting to a point where you have enough material for three, maybe four albums <laughs> and you don't have the means to record them. Right. So you say, what's the point of this? You know? Yeah. So now I want to, you know, now that I'm able, I want to record, you know, at least an album a year with my different projects. Right. Right. And, um, you know, put those out and see where that goes. Like just speaking of recording, how do you choose the people that you're going to record with? Mm. I try to have... Um, you know, bands. I try to develop a band over a certain period of time and then go in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I choose the musicians solely based on the music mm-hmm. at first. Okay. And then I also look at how busy they are. Are they going to be able to be a part of my project, you know, 
if they're working already 280 days of the year. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I pick people that are available beyond that and um, they have the right vibe personally. Yeah. You know, that's important yeah. too. Yeah. Um, like what kind of vibe do you look for? Um, you know, someone that's not going to be a diva or cause problems, you know, when we go on the road. Right, right, you know, right. With sound men or festival people. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who's easier to get along with. Or, um, you know, I've been on the road with people who are very passionate about the music and they're very introverted. And to me, that's fine. Okay. Um, I can deal with that. But I know some people get, you know, wigged out by, by that too. So. Yeah. I guess it just depends on what the type of people you like to be around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For, no, I get it. So would you change anything about your musical journey thus far? You know, I like to think that I would. I like to think, well, if I would have gone to an arts high school or, you know, if I would have gone straight to New York sooner or things, things like that. But I think every, everything happens yeah. for a reason and everything lands in its own place. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing, like I said earlier, the only thing I would change is I would um, be more adamant to what I saw as my vision versus what other people saw. Mm. Because everyone is multifaceted. Yeah. You know, we can all have different images, different looks. We can love different styles of music, you know, and different genres of jazz at different periods of time. Yeah. So just because one person says, you know, I want you to play this type of music and look this way mm. one year, that may not be where your head is at. Right. So I, th- I say do everything in your own time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to switch gears and just talk about like money. <laughs> <laughs> like how do you set prices? Because a lot of times if I'm giving a master class at a school, like all the kids who want to be jazz musicians are worried about making money. Rightfully so. Yeah. And they want to know how do they set their price? Like how does that work? You know, like in town and out of town, which is like two completely different monsters to deal right. with right you know and being a band leader versus being a side man like what are some things that you do a lot of your price depends on where you are in your career mm-hmm. and how many people ahead of you they can hire for a lesser price right or a greater price you mm-hmm. know at some point i realized well they could get you know antonio harder they could get you know gary Bartz, and they can get these kitty garrett okay so how much are they getting paid okay right. And you find that out and you're like, well, who's below me and how much are they getting paid? Mm-hmm. So you kind of balance it out. You ask a lot of people, you ask your mentors, you know, right. even some of your friends, find out kind of what the going rate is and balance that to where you are with your career. Right. Um, and in the city, there tends to be just set rates for clubs and whatnot, but some people accept that and some people don't. Right, right, right. So you have to decide if you have the star power to demand more right are you selling more tickets you know exactly. if you are i think that's something that people miss like this is a product like they just expect to get money without producing and when yeah. producing i mean people need to come see you because why would i pay you more money if it's two people in the audience you know what i mean your music right. might be beautiful but if no one cares mm-hmm. y- you know then we have a problem right and when i was starting out um the clubs would be empty at sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, I would go to the, you know the person at the door, the the owner of the club, and say, "Hey, I know you didn't make your money. What can you pay us? that's going to be fair." Oh, and okay. they loved it, okay. and they had me back, oh. and they thanked me for it. Okay, you know, um, and then when I started playing there, 
more often and having audiences they would give me more money ah. you know without even talking to me oh you had such and such amount tonight so here's here's a little extra oh cool you know and you develop that relationship with people right but if people think you're just taking them right you know, then they're not going to work with you so easily well maybe you need to know who and who not to do that with because it might not always well, work out in your favor with, yeah, with certain club owners or certain you know promoters or whatever right yeah but I think everybody appreciates not losing money. Right. No, for sure. And and when you know that they lost money because you didn't promote your gig or because you don't have a following that they thought you had. Right. Then that's on you. Right. For sure. And I don't think many artists really realize that. Right. Because in today's market, we have to like do everything with the brand ourselves. We got to make mm-hmm. beautiful music. We got to <laughs> like style ourselves and like we have to sell ourselves, you know. And the selling is probably the part that most people miss out. Yeah. We're so focused on the music, which mm-hmm. is a great thing. But in this day and age, um, you really, you have to have both sides. Yeah. So people may not know this, but like when you go on a roll, you know, just to an arbitrary number, you get paid like thousands of dollars for like a set amount of gig, gigs or whatever. And then when you're at home, someone might offer you, especially in New York City, $25 or $50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> To play the gig with this, like you know, the same group of people, you know, the same level. It's kind of a weird thing. Like, how do you psychologically cope with that? You know, where you have this one group of people who think you're great and they want to compensate you fairly for the work you've put in. This other group of people who take it for granted because there's a thousand other groups just as good or better. Right. For well, for me, it is what it is, and playing is playing no matter what you're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal is to get paid because we do this for a living but when you're in new york i look at new york like a drawing board kind of like a just a pool of people you know if i'm in new york and someone calls me to play for 25 dollars probably gonna say no because i could be right. cooking dinner right. you know so i could right, right. i could be practicing or something but to be fair um, like everyone's not in that position like i know when i first moved to new york my first gig actually was $25 gig mm-hmm. in Brooklyn that I had to bring drums to in the winter. And, like, I lived Oof. in Harlem. Oof. <laughs> so yep. I didn't have a choice because, like, I don't have – I don't know anyone. Like, sometimes you have to – You need to eat. You got to eat. Yeah. You know? It's like, I got to eat. I got to go make You got to meet gig. people. Yeah. Yeah, I did a whole lot of those when I first moved to town, probably for five, six years. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of gigs that were just door gigs. Right. And we might walk away with $10. Right. And a lot of it, though, has to do with do you enjoy who you're playing with? You right, know, right. now if, you know, if let's say, not that they would, but if, you know, someone like Warren Wolf or Kenny Barron called me, you know, to do a session for free, right. I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I would maybe pay. Right. So, <laughs> you know, like I said, New York is kind of a drawing board. It's a melting pot. So you can play with whoever you want there. Mm-hmm. It's a workshop. Right. Um doesn't really matter how much you're getting paid because that could turn into something yeah um and even if it doesn't you might meet somebody else so you might get more musical knowledge you might right uh, there's a lot of things i agree when you're starting out you have to do everything yeah you have to take everything um i played in the park (laughs) you know i developed my mailing list playing in the park (laughs) you know (laughs) it seems like another lifetime but right you got to do that but then as you start touring you can pick and choose what you want to do of course and what you need to do. Some things right. might not be good for you to do. Because if, if 
you're getting paid as a leader to play at Blue Note and Dizzy's Club. Right. But then you take a $25 gig at Swing 46 the yeah. same week. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are we paying you this much? Exactly. So you have to decide what, what's good for you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And for me, it's about the music. If someone who I really would love to play with calls me to play for the door even, I'd be like, yeah. Right. But um, it, it just depends on who it is. Yeah. 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 That's good advice. That's good advice, you know. So we're going to change gears to talk about university. Yeah. And do you think it's worth it to pay like $100,000 to obtain like, you know, a jazz studies degree or some other arts degree? Well, when I finished new school, I was looking at the amount that I ended up paying. And I thought, well, if I would have just taken private lessons the whole time, Mm -hmm. I might be better off. But then I was thinking about it and the experiences that I got at the school and the relationships I developed with the student body and with some of the teachers um, were really invaluable to this day. And, and that definitely includes Juilliard too. Um, so and it depends who you are and where you are in your, in your playing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're already tearing it up and playing with major artists, you probably don't need to go to school. Right. But if you still need to work on your craft a little more and get your ideas together and, that sort of thing. I think it could be a good idea. Maybe not paying a hundred thousand, but if you get some kind of scholarship, right, it right, would right. be worth it um, because you can learn a lot about your peers and the business. And you know, I think there's some alternatives. Like maybe, like I think you should definitely go to school for something. But if you're gonna pay, like try to go to a cheaper school in a school with a good program. It, like I was thinking about this, and maybe you can get four or five of your friends to go with you who are also on your level. And then you guys can go in there together and develop together at a school that's not as expensive. Right. Because, you know, you're going to have to pay that back plus interest. You know, I don't know what the... the that's st- a good idea. I would recommend not getting into debt. That's if, what I'm if saying. If at all possible as a jazz musician, not right. getting into debt. Um, if you have to acquire a little bit of debt, that's understandable and you can probably pay it off. Right. But um, that's a good idea. You know, I know a lot of people are choosing schools like Michigan State right, right now in Lansing for that same reason. Mm-hmm. It's not as expensive. It's a smaller pool of musicians who are good and who do have a vision. Right. Um, and a lot of them do end up in New York. Right. So there are other options. At the same time, um, if you go to Berkeley or Juilliard, you have that name behind you. Right. So you're really paying for that. And it depends how important that is to you. Yeah, I mean, you're going to lose something if you go to a school like Michigan or UNO or, you know, or any other right. university with a good program, but maybe not the the name, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to lose something, but you'll be richer or you'll have more money when you get out That's of school true. and not have to, like, have the pressure of paying off the student loans until the system is fixed or changed, you know, right. in America, because it's just kind of ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Um and and I've gotten to where I've actually thought back and wished I would have gotten either an edu- education degree mm-hmm. or a business degree, something in another field um, would have maybe served me a little better, just paper-wise, right. as far as having the paper that right. I paid for. Because having a paper that says you can perform music doesn't do you anything. Right, because you could just do that already. Right. It's like you didn't need any validation. Right. The only that. thing that gives me validity from school 
is the fact someone can say I went to Juilliard. Right, right. And then right. people go, Oh, right, right. she's valid right. suddenly, <laughs> you know. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's just so. fucking impressive. I mean, it just is, you know. Thanks. What's your definition of success? My definition of success is knowing what makes you happy and doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included for a time, chase things that they want other than what they need. Mm. Um, so I think to know what you need to be happy and then to still be able to pursue your dreams, I think that's success. Yeah. Wow. That's a good definition. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Thanks. In America, there's this, this undercurrent of like unconscious bias towards women. So how do you think the music scene deals with uh, unconscious bias towards women? It's, you know, it definitely exists, this unconscious bias. Um, just from our history and the history of the United States and possibly the world, I think there are a lot of people that are very open-minded and progressive, and they're making a point to hire some of the most talented female musicians or to mentor mm-hmm. younger ones, which is a great thing. Yeah. But I think it's going to take us quite a while to get to a point where it's accepted, not just from jazz musicians in the scene, but from the community as seeing women as part of jazz, mm. other than vocalists right, or pianists. And um, when people think of jazz, you know, and I know some people, you know, disagree because the scene is run by a number of different cultures now. But when people think of jazz around the world, they still think of black male jazz musicians. Right, right. But to accept another image is going to take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a lot of women doing some things that really um, touch people and inspire people to um, to change that. And I think we're on the way now. It's in a process of progression now, which is great. But um, I don't know if I'll see it or not, where everything is um, equal. So who's a person you, you consider a role model, especially in your, in your early life? Um, in my early life, pre-New York, I would have to say my band director, Wayne Kuhn. Mm. Um, he really set the standard for me then. Um, you know, he said things. He would pull me aside and, and say things like, you know, the best always rises to the top. And say things like um, the difference between all the great leaders and figures and the ones who weren't was that they kept getting back up. You know, so he, he really would say something like that and just walk away and leave me to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and he challenged me. And, you know, so as as a younger person learning jazz, he was really influential. So he gave you that lesson of perseverance, like early mm-hmm. on. So when you did get to, to New York and you faced different challenges, like the panties and all of this. Right. That, <laughs> he was just, all I got to do is keep going. Yeah, I may not have been ready musically, but I was ready, <laughs> you know. Mentally. Mentally, yeah. So what's important to you, like mission, vision, or core values and why? That's an interesting question. Um, For me, I've learned that it's core values um, because that gives you longevity. Mm. If you deal with people in a way that creates relationships based on values and you're not jumping from one gig to the other because you think it's so much better just for one gig. Right. Or, you know... Like I mentioned before, club owners just letting them sit with a loss because you didn't do the publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I think those values go a long way. They might actually go further in some cases than someone's actual playing. Mm. So core values, but also, you know, you've got to be on a mission and you've got to have a vision. Right. So they're all important, but I would say core values. Core values. Like, do you discuss these types of things with other leaders in your community? In I a, have. Yeah? Oh, cool. When I came upon situations where, you know, I had one gig and then I got called for another gig with one of my heroes that paid a lot more. But I was contracted for this other gig already. Uh, and the time was, you know, short. And I called my mentors. Okay. You know, I called about three of my mentors and said, what would you do? And they all said the same thing. What they said? They said, you could jump this gig for that gig now. But chances are the other leader is going to have more respect for you for sticking to your guns. They're right. going to know you're loyal. Right. By you jumping, they're going to see that you're not loyal. And then the person that you're leaving the gig for, you know, they're going to be upset. Right. Yeah. So really, I mean, that's that goes a long way. So what advice would you give for, to like a young musician coming up, uh, assuming a leadership role? Like, what would you say to them to help them succeed and avoid some of the pitfalls that you did when you were first coming into those types of situations? Being a leader is much different than being a sideman. Mm -hmm. And when you're the leader, you can't focus 100% on the music unless you, you, know, you have people around you handling everything else. If you have the right management and staff around you, then maybe you can. Right. But then you're still managing the music and where it's going and the band and, um, you know, speaking in between tunes, everything. Uh, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. And as a leader... You know, you spend more time booking the band. You spend more time contracting and get people's passports and things like that. Um, so there's a lot to consider, you know, especially publicity and the image is the image of the band. And right, right, right. It's a different thing. Okay. Like, what are the, like the most pressing challenges you feel like leaders in our community are facing today or musicians mm. specifically? Like, why? I think the most pressing challenge today is um, coming up with a product, with an image that people can actually sell and that draws people. You know, I think John Batiste is a great example oh, of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he could have just played standards. Yeah. Same with Robert Glasper. I saw yeah. him since 2000, and, and he was one of the best jazz pianists coming up on the scene. Yeah. But he decided to do something that was going to forward the music and take the music somewhere else mm -hmm. and that would create an audience. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so it's that vision that's the biggest challenge, knowing what you can do and what most people are probably content with doing. Right. Or maybe doing something a little different that's going to, you know, where you can still do what you want to do, but it's, it's going to attract more people. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But to close things, I want to know, like, what are you most grateful for? I'm grateful um, every day to have gotten where I've gotten and to be alive and still learning and still playing and, um, you know, to be able to think about, you know, things like, you know, having a nice place to live, having a family, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really thankful for a lot of things in my life. You know, every day when I wake up, because a lot of musicians don't don't get that. 
Yeah, yeah. I've been very fortunate. That's dope, man. I want to thank Sherelle Cassidy for coming on the Working Artist Project. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> dope. I'll catch y'all later. 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 Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the Working Artist Project. But before you go, I just need you to do one more thing. Don't forget to hit the like button and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also reach me at DarianDouglas.com. Just when you get there, just go to the contact page, drop me a line. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know if you like the podcast. I want to know if you want to hear certain topics, whatever it is. Just let me know. Let me know what it is and I'll, I'll do my best to make it happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before I forget, also, you can catch me on Facebook by typing in The Working Artist Project uh, or you can just type in Darian Douglas. I'm looking forward to connecting with you later.